Welcome to the Self Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller, and this is the podcast people tune into for in-depth discussions on the latest research from our foremost leaders in self-improvement, so you can be growing and more equipped to live at your fullest capacity in body, mind, and soul. In this episode, we challenge the cultural concept of positivity meaning our propensity to take a hard circumstance event and feeling and simply spray paint positivity over it right away. When we aren't making a case for being negative at all, but rather to accept the hard feelings we encounter, consider them with understanding, and then yes, ultimately move past with greater insight and wisdom to ultimately seek a beneficial outcome. So my guest is Whitney Goodman. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist who's taken on our concept, cultural concept, again, of positivity, and has an Instagram following of well over half a million followers who are finding just great help from her guidance and encouragement that life is well worth living, but treating it as just a continual self-improvement project and bypassing our true feelings doesn't leave room for a full quality life. I brought Whitney on the show because, I mean, hey, I'm a staunch believer in positivity. Zig Ziglar's famous quote, positive thinking won't let you do anything, but it will let you do everything better than negative thinking will. I I believe this, but to jump right from the negative experience and right to positive thinking robs us from the growth and learning and peace that we find in between. That's Whitney's message. And she's taken her years of work as a therapist studying this cultural positivity, and now written the book, Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. The book is a great dive into how we've distorted the concept of positivity and how we can better handle the hard things in life and ultimately acknowledge them, but not be overwhelmed and controlled by them either. You can find Whitney Goodman at her website or Instagram, sitwithwit.com. Hey, if you find value from this self-helpful podcast, it'd be great if you'd leave a review, let people know what to expect, what you think about it. And the best thing you can do is keep the conversation going. Talk about this one. This is a great one to continue the conversation with with someone else. You can always find me at my website or social media at kevinmiller.co. Next up, Whitney Goodman and a dig into toxic positivity. Whitney, diving into your book, of course, I love the title. You had me at hello uh, with, with that. I was interested. Diving into it, my first thought was a take kind of on the cultural positivity that you have or that you've taken is kind of like the low-fat craze in the 80s. You know, everyone was touting it from physicians to the government. And what happened? Well, everybody just got fatter. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, I think you can definitely compare the positive thinking industry to the diet industry for sure. Well, which is interesting because on this show, which it's called self-helpful, it used to be the Ziegler show and it was about positivity. And even there, you know, he would, uh, he was a king of that as opposed to one of the quotes that I, I mean, I do appreciate is positive thinking won't help you do anything, but it'll help you do everything better than negative thinking will. And when we're looking at a problem or something that happened and just dwelling on that to think, okay, how can I get past this? It makes sense. And yet, man, I'm, you've got me with it to take everything and not to consider how this really feels to sit with the emotion 
and to give it credit. Yeah. Again, just painting positivity over everything doesn't seem to be working either, which I assume is what brought you here. Yes, absolutely. I think we've become so devoted to positivity as a solution for everything. Um, and as a therapist, I've realized it's not working for a lot of people. Well, you started a Pinterest board. That's where this began is, is how your story goes of happiness and inspirational quotes that bothered you. I mean, just tell me more about that time and kind of the spirit you were in then. Yeah. In early 2018, I got on Instagram just to promote my small private practice. And I started seeing these quotes floating around. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to start saving these and do something with them. And I created this board just of these positive thinking quotes that everybody was sharing that drove me crazy. And they ended up being the inspiration for the next like four years of my work. Well, in, in that, so you are, I mean, let's, so let's just hit it right off the, the bat. I mean, even looking at positivity, we look at positivity or negativity, like that's just it black and white, either, or as opposed to there's some spectrum and some, would you even say it's not even, it, it's, it's somewhat of a timeline. There's a place for both. So we're going to take a negative occurrence that happens, take us through, walk us through an appropriate, a healthy well, a walkthrough of both. Yeah. Yeah. So if something negative happens, something bad in your life, I think a lot of people jump to like, I need to just be positive about this, believe that it's going to get better. And I think that there is a happy medium, like you're saying, right? Where we can come to this situation and say, what do I need help with? What's bothering me? Uh, what's hardest about this? And also, what do I have access to? What can I be hopeful about? Uh, what can I do to improve this situation and really try to have a balanced look at what's working for me and what isn't so that we can move forward in a pragmatic and useful way. So what are we then? And again, I've gone through your book, but I want you to share it here. I mean, what is the prime or, or kind of a first rung issue that we miss? How do we harm ourselves, hurt our progress, our wellness, when we have the negative and we jump right to the positive, whether we do it to ourselves or whether, as you talk so often in the book about, you share this negative thing with somebody and they say, hey, just, you know, look on the bright side. It could be worse, yada, yada. But when we don't make room to walk through the timeline. So the first thing that happens is it feels very dismissive, whether that's to yourself or someone else. And so you automatically go to this place of like, wow, I shouldn't be feeling that. I'm not allowed to feel that it's the wrong thing. And I think that's where shame starts to bubble up, right? It also prevents us from thinking of any solutions or problem solving because we're just in this place of, I have to believe that it's going to get better or that it's going to work out. And I'm not going to think about my options there. So there, right there, not going right to the positivity. We're missing the crux of what's really happening and the worthwhile consideration. Is that fair? Absolutely. When we say everything's going to be fine, it's not a problem. I just need to think positive. You're not able to really look at what's actually happening here and why is it happening? There might be an actual legitimate problem that needs to be remedied and, and a fix for that. But if I just immediately jump into the positive, I'm almost gaslighting myself or someone else into saying, that's not really a problem. You just need to think positive and, and it'll go away. 
take this from, a, I know this is a, a, a somewhat elementary, but it feels just so relevant. We're at a time right now, as you know, where mental health has, it doesn't feel like it's ever been talked about more. And we're looking at depression gets, seems like it gets the headlines, but just diseases of despair in general, mm-hmm. which is one of the mm-hmm. fastest rising areas of pathology that we've got in healthcare. Uh, and I say that in quotes, but when we look at that and look at, it feels like it can feel like negativity that's overwhelming people, overrunning people. It's what the ne- the media is full of. Mm-hmm. It feels relevant at face value, at least to come at it and go, Oh my gosh, we have got to battle this with positivity. Yeah. Yes. I understand the desire to do that. And I think what most people say in response to my work is like, well, I'm afraid if I talk about it or if I let them vent, they're just going to get more depressed. They're going to become more negative. And my experience as a clinician has been really the opposite of that, that for most of my very depressed clients, once I give them the space to really talk about what's bothering them, Uh, to be validated, to feel understood, they don't have as much depression anymore. They end up feeling like I have a language to talk about this. I feel understood and I'm not crazy. And that is so powerful for people. Isn't that probably a primary issue of that? If I join this person in this negative event, negative perspective, I'm going to enable that's definitely a concern for people, right? Like if I, if I validate what they're feeling, if I say, oh, it makes sense why you're so upset, they are going to be like, oh, I should just be upset and stay there. But this really powerful thing happens when I say like, oh, it's hot outside. And somebody's like, yeah, it is hot. That we both are like, oh, we understand each other. And we both feel that. And then we move on versus if you say it's hot and someone's like, it's not hot. Why are you saying that? Why are you complaining about that? Then you like double down because right. you got to convince them of what you're feeling. Right. And you've got, I mean, chapter six of your book is how to complain effectively. I mean, I just read the chapter headline and immediately thought about our propensity to vent. And so I'll, I'll ask you on that. I mean, that is one that you're well aware of. We have a cultural perspective of you got to vent, you got to let it out. Don't stuff it. And I, uh, you know, I would say my, my, in my marriage, my wife's a venter and I'm a stuffer and I'd say, mm-hmm. we're both missing it. So help us. Yeah. So what's, what's the healthy way to do it? So venting all the time and about everything isn't healthy and stuffing it all down all the time isn't good either. And I think each person, depending on their personality and temperament probably has, um, a different threshold for what feels good to them. So what I would say, it's about how you vent, who you're venting to, and really what the purpose of that is. And that's the same thing with complaining, is making sure that it's being done in a way where you can get your needs met. Well, so that the purpose of it. So am I venting to do, what are we generally venting for what reason? Is it to validate? And is that where we get into trouble? There's a lot of reasons, right? We might be venting for connection. Like I want to feel closer to you. We might be trying to have some type of release uh, to feel validated. We also might be trying to create some type of change, right? So I'm telling you I'm upset about this thing because I think there needs to be some sort of action 
on your end or on someone else's end. Well, then it feels like, so when I have, so take me through it. So I have a negative feeling X, Y, Z happens. I'm in a car wreck or I get fired or, you know, I have a hangnail, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And here it is. Well, obviously, first off, you're saying we got to be aware. I mean, I got to, I got to stop and take, it's not a, I don't react right away. I've got to stop. Is that got to be step one, which to the greatest degree, I mean, that's the hardest thing to do in life. Yeah. So if we go with the, you got fired example, I think the first thing there is really validating, like getting fired sucks. It's hard to get fired, whether you wanted to lose your job or not. Now you got to figure out a lot of stuff. So validating that feeling and then moving into what do I need right now? Do I need to talk to somebody about this? Do I need to jump into action and start looking for another job? Uh, What is going to make me feel more in control of my situation right now and make me feel more supported? Take that through a personality bent. You know, if we want to just be as basic as the introvert, extrovert, the person, well, I'll say that and the person who, because I don't know if it relates to introvert, extrovert, but the person who verbally processes through things and the person who does it more internally. Mm -hmm. So I personally may be more of an internal processor within my relationship. And so for me, I might say, I'm going to sit down and think about what I need to do. I'm going to come up with a plan of action and then I might be ready to talk about how I'm feeling, or maybe I'm going to write about it or journal about it. And that would be a way to move through the feelings without necessarily connecting with another person over it. And that might be enough for people who are external processors or who really need that community feel. They might want to call someone and right out the gate say, I really just need you to listen and not try to fix this for me. But just be there for me and let, I just need to vent for a second and get it out. You mentioned validating. So I have this feeling I need to validate it, reconcile that with the aspect of I'm trying now to validate my, well, I'm going to bring out the word, which, which you're comfortable with is of being a victim. Am I validating Mm -hmm. that I have this feeling I'm working through the emotion as you talk about that's chapter five, how to process an emotion. Am I doing that in a healthy way or am I validating my place as a victim, which has taken me lower? Is Mm -hmm. that fair? Mm -hmm. So when I hear the language of like being a victim, I think a lot of people use that and think if I feel feelings that make me upset about a situation, that means I'm a victim, but emotions are just biological, physiological responses to things happening around us that we give meaning to, and that meaning can change and evolve. So validating is really just saying, Right now, I got these sensations going on in my body. This is the story I'm giving to this situation. This is the meaning to it. And it it's neutral. It's just how I feel right now. What I choose to do with that information, the ways I choose to behave are what's going to dictate more about me and about my life. With your clients, so, which you just mm-hmm. got finished with one right before we jumped yes. on here. With your clients, are you working, somebody has a pattern dealing with negativity poorly, or just, you know, handicapping themselves to whatever degree. Do you have though, 
a perspective of helping them prepare for the next negative event and to give it a different meaning? And would that different be a more positive meeting? So people who are overly positive actually have a lot of trouble with problem solving when negative things come up. We see this reflected in the research. So what the approach I take with my clients is that negative distressing things are going to happen and they're going to upset you and impact you. What are we going to do when that happens to validate, feel it and not get knocked down completely by it? And once you can create this internal locus of control of like, I have the ability to get through hard things people feel much more empowered and I think less scared when those things happen and they're less likely to get stuck in them. Well, yeah, you have the story in your book. I'm Dave. So mm. you're talking to Dave and, she, and, and I'll take it out. And so folks, for you to hear out of Whitney's book, she says, Dave, and you wrote this, can't access any feelings that aren't positive and tends to shut down when things get too heavy. Uh, my, my wife's hand just went up, <laughs> I, I, but it, it is, I mean, that's where I've been. And, and for candor, uh, and, and my, my audience knows as I talk about it enough, I mean, I'm, I've been in therapy for years now, but I'm 51 years old after a lifetime of not knowing anything different. That's just all I knew. You take everything and you look at the bright side and you take positivity. And I mean, and I'm not going to diss my, my appreciation of optimism and, and working through things. And yet, especially in, you know, intimate relationships, as you know, not being able to deal with negative emotions doesn't work. So one of my therapist's primary calls to me is Kevin, when the negative thing happens, sit in it. Mm -hmm. And it's still Whitney. I mean, it's the, that, that right there. That's the hardest thing I can intellectualize through this. We can talk about this and we can say, gosh, it seems like he has a pretty good grasp. And the moment comes and I just don't, as another therapist told me, I, I haven't, I have not, I need to build a file. I have not had a file for that and I need to build that. So, I mean, again, we're talking about, this is, this is rewiring. This is, I need to be re brainwashed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's sitting. I think so many people can relate to that. And because we applaud people who are so overly positive and optimistic, you can really get through life pretty well without ever having to sit anything in anything negative. But I think the biggest thing you're missing out on that is connection with other people and being able to be vulnerable. Like the people that we feel really close to a lot of the time, it's because we were able to go through the bad stuff with them and get out on the other side. And so people who can't sit with that are likely to really like have very surface level interactions because of that avoidance. Yeah, quit talking about me. <laughs> well, cause you're, cause you're right. I, I read something I don't know what book it was. It was, uh, uh, some psychologist. I, it may be even somebody I had on the show and it, no, it was Terry real. It was Terry, Terry real, um, who I had on the show, uh, months ago. And either he talked about it on the show or, or in his book, he referenced a story kind of like you did with Dave and said, this guy's going along, you know, he's positive. He's doing this and doing that. And it, it really works well 
in the workplace. It worked well. And so I would say that for me, it, man, it was great for athletics. It's what helped me be a pro cyclist and get on the podium. It was great for some business aspects. It was great for almost everything. And it would be great. And I'd be just good if I'm just going to be primarily alone or with shallow relationships. And yet right. if I want the intimate relationships, which generally we all do to some degree, that's where it runs aground and hits our connection. So there, make your choice. So if you want to be the narcissistic guy like me, who is just kind of good with, you know, initially with how he is and go on, fine, do that on your own with very shallow relationships. If you want something more, that's your motive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Fair? Okay. Um, I mean that again, we're talking about the hard work of this is, significant rewiring, even for the culture. I mean, we've got the social media world, which you know, well, and it's one of the reasons you went on Pinterest and tried to kind of turn the tables that we do give the highlight reels, which is hard Uh, to me. It's, I think about back in the day when we had photo albums in the house, they were no different. You go through and look at your grandparents' yeah. photo album. It was all the, the the nice stuff. We didn't have the car wreck in there, or we didn't have the argument uh, pictured in there. We do that. It's so hard. How do you be authentic in today's culture like that? Social media is tough because I I do think there's a fine line where you shouldn't have to share everything on social media to be authentic, right? right. I'm somebody that spends quite a bit of time on social media for work, but I don't really share a lot about my life there. And so I think there's a way to be authentic without sharing everything. And and the biggest thing about that is like, am I only purposefully sharing this certain curated view of me to appear a certain way to lie about how things actually are? And does that feel inauthentic for me? Because it feels odd to be living a certain life online and a certain life behind the scenes that is not aligned for people. Yeah. I mean, we have this, as you know, current trend of gratitude, which it's hard to shoot that down, but to have a gratitude journal, to get up in the morning, think about what you're grateful for. It's hard to douse that. And yet again, where would you counsel us even on that aspect? Gratitude to me has become kind of like positivity where now we've weaponized gratitude. It's like people are like, oh, you should be grateful. Don't complain about that. Wake up and make a gratitude list like two days after your mom died. Like it's like there's this pressure to always be engaging with gratitude. And I've found that within the four walls of therapy, people are like, I hate this. If my, if a therapist tells me to make a gratitude journal, I'm walking out. Like they're really annoyed with the practice. And it's because it's inauthentic, honestly. It's interesting. Weaponized gratitude. In, in essence, you're saying that we've weaponized positivity and you're not to keep with the metaphor, you're not shooting it down, but we, to have weaponized it I, again, I want you to state this. I know I've already asked it. I feel like you already have, but to state it again, when somebody has that, not just a negative event, let's say, but they've had it and they know they're spiraling. I mean, they're just going, they're just going downhill. Now this is, this is harming their life. This is harming their relationships. It's just, I mean, the day is going down. I saw somebody recently who said something about let's, how do we make the pot or the negative event be that? and not have it cause a negative day, week, 
life. Again, mm-hmm. where's the first go to when you real, especially when you realize you're spiraling? Most people get stuck when they feel like something is going to last forever. And so I think the reminder of like, this will end. I am going to come out of this feeling. I will not feel like this forever. And again, trying to behave as if things are getting better. So a lot of people who are depressed say, well, I don't feel motivated to get out of bed. I don't feel motivated to shower. And so my first suggestion is you got to do that thing and be depressed, do that thing and be anxious. So I'm going to shower while I'm anxious. I'm going to get out of bed while I'm depressed and it's not going to feel good. It's going to feel terrible. It's going to be really hard. But if you wait till you feel good to take care of your mental health, you're never going to feel good. What about the idea of kind of like the five minute rule type thing, you know, that people talk about and Hey, okay, I'm, I feel bad. I'm going to, I'm going to be pissed. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be sad, disappointed. I'm going to, and, and I'm going to give it a timeline and then cut it off and mm-hmm. then, and then take the positive approach and try to deal with that Weigh in on that. So I use a different approach that I think is, If you have something in your day that you need to get through or that you need to do, let's say I need to go to work, but I'm really worried about something. I'll tell myself tonight when I need to get, when I get home, I can worry about this as much as I want. But for right now, I have to go and do this thing. And most of the time, by the time you get home, you're like, oh, not that worried about that thing anymore. The other way can work, I think for short things, but when it's something big, someone might feel pressure to like feel better very quickly. I think it depends on what they're dealing with. Well, put that in. That's, I, I, I appreciate the chiming in on that. Let's put it into the day at work, let's say, or, or with your kids or whatever, something happens and you feel bad and you need to deal with that. You need to feel bad. You need to, but right now you're at work or you're mm-hmm. at school or you're with the kids And it's not an appropriate time. It feels like there's a bit of a rub there because we have some people and, you know, culturally and in the workplace even say, look, man, I feel bad. I I need to not be, I I don't want to be inauthentic. I need to be true to myself and and deal with this. And of course, if you're the employer, you may be saying, look, dude, this is do it on your own time. Help us with that. That's tough. I, I think this whole movement, especially on social media, to like feel your feelings all the time has kind of done a disservice to people in that way because we do have to learn how to compartmentalize sometimes. And you can't do it when you're with your kids sometimes. You can't do it when you're at work. That there is a lot of power in being able to say, I got to put this feeling down right now, not forever. In three hours, I can go, I'm going to go cry in my car and talk to my mom about this and talk to my therapist. But right now I got to keep my head in the game. And I think that's actually a positive skill when used in the right way. If you do that all the time and you never do the crying or talking to your therapist, that's when it becomes a problem. So is it fair to say then that that is a, to take that, to, to realize, to sit in it for a moment or to understand that, I'm having this feeling I need to deal with it, but this is not the time. Would you say that's, that's, that's health. That's what we're trying to get to is health that you don't just shove, shove it, but that you, uh, deal with it at an appropriate time. And you're able to, you have the bandwidth. Absolutely. And that you understand where are the safe places and the right places for me to engage with that distress. Like I know that there are certain people in my life that if I start crying in front of them, 
they're not going to meet that in a positive way. And so those aren't safe people. Those aren't safe places for me to do that. I need to set myself up for success when it comes to being emotional. You mentioned, well, just talking about emotions. So I have not had her on the show yet, but um, was prescribed by my therapist, Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart. And it was for that purpose of Kevin, you kind of understand what, you know, either angry or kind of sad or, but hardly that it's just kind of one place we need to increase your understanding of that. So you can figure out which ones really matter to you, which it was, it was helpful. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I, I never, never used the word or had the concept or thought of humiliation mm. and yet to realize, oh man, that's that hit me when I read her yeah. writing about humiliation and uh, betrayal as one, which I just didn't, again, I didn't have the, now that I do, I can look more and I, and I need more than that. I need, you know, I'm, I was working with my therapist yesterday. He was forcing me to go, he had me going through the list, <laughs> pick out, okay, when this happened, what did you feel? Cause I'm looking at it and go, man, I don't know. And I mean, do you agree with that, that we need, we've got to, what would you say? Get educated, aware of more of those feelings so we can better understand ourselves and therefore then deal with it? A hundred percent. The exercise that your therapist gave you is great. We need to broaden our feelings vocabulary, right? So a lot of us grow up with parents who are happy, sad, angry, right? And you maybe didn't hear any other feelings, words in your home. And so whenever you feel something physically, it's like, oh, that's either happy, sad, or angry. And really there is a multitude of things you could be feeling. And what we see reflected in the research about emotions is that when you can label an emotion and give it a name and it becomes known to you, there is decreased activity in the amygdala. It's less scary to you. And it's easier for you to manage. If I don't know what I'm feeling, like people who have panic attacks, they get so scared because it doesn't make sense to them. They don't know what it is. But if I feel this and I'm like, oh, this feels like anxiety. I know what to do when I feel anxious. Totally different game. And there was me for the first time having my sleep disrupted with anxiety and just in my great intelligence and awareness or, you know, thought so at least feeling like this is ridiculous, Kevin, get a grip. Why on, you have mm-hmm. no, re- you have no real reason to be, uh, to be losing sleep over this. Just get a grip, go to sleep and, and not being able to, and not knowing why. And that was the consummate quite our answer is I, I don't know to what, you know, to the question of what do you really want? What are you feeling is I don't know. And uh, you know, look at, I, I would, I'm going to pick on males, especially. I mean, we, we tend to, to do that, to look at that is still, and I still know this exists in me, even though I intellectually, again, know better, but it, it's this little hiccup of weakness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we get I'm- past that? Well, I mean, think about all the messaging that men get about feelings, right? The only feelings that are really socially acceptable are like happiness and anger. And so you're going to get confused or feel like something is wrong with you when you feel something else or you're not able to perform in the ways that you normally are in, in all, any area of life. Well, and there it is. There's the 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 thing that I used to think about was... I applauded myself for my ability to not get uh, 
waylaid by a negative event and just take care of stuff, which, you know, you can put that into the movie scene and the ship captain and everything's going haywire in a storm and he's solid and calm at the helm and taking everybody, everybody's freaking out. That makes sense. And there's a place for that in life with sure. a family. And if my house is on fire or, or whatever, that's not often happening, however. Mm-hmm. And I've taken that concept kind of like taking the endurance that I had as an athlete and take it into relationship. And that's not what relationships need. So it feels like this, even there, can that feel though, there can be, it feels like almost an area or an opportunity for schizophrenia in there that I'd go to work and I do need to be more this way at work. It makes sense Mm. or in athletics or whatever on the ball field. And yet at home or in relationships, I kind of reconcile that again, back, we're back to that. I I just kind of want to be me and it feels like there's needs for different things. Yeah. It sounds like you're having trouble integrating like the different parts of yourself. And there's a type of um, therapy called internal family systems therapy that they talk about how we all have these different parts of us. And sometimes one part like takes the driver's seat, which in this case would be like the one that needs to be in control and, and get through everything and shuts down all the other parts that could also be quite useful in other moments of life. Yeah. It reminds me of driving. So I generally drive. I have all my life, no matter what situation, for some reason, I was always the guy with the car. I always want to drive probably because I put myself in those situations because I mm-hmm. would rather drive. If I have to sit in the passenger seat or in the back, especially in the passenger seat is the worst. I make a conscious decision to, cause I'll find myself acting like I'm still driving and I'm looking this way and looking at that and realize I have no control and I'm going to go nuts. So I just have to shut it down. And it feels, again, I don't know a better word than schizophrenic. Well, I think it, it, it can feel very, when you say schizophrenic, I feel like you're trying to say like, it feels like disjointed, almost like all the parts of myself can't exist at the same time. Yeah. 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 I mean, but is that where we often find ourselves if we're in the different roles? Cause we all, uh, most of us have different roles. We have one with a, a, I, I like the in movies and shows when they depict some powerful person and then they walk in the door at home and you see the change happen. You Mm -hmm. see them now they're just a regular person. It's like kind of seeing somebody in a suit. And then when you see them in their underwear, I mean, you just can't act the same uh, or or gives a different feel that there is that, that we need, like you said, we need to find a way to integrate that. Yeah. It's, you know, I became a mom in the last year or so. And I think that was a a feeling for me that I can relate to what you're saying of like, there's a new part of me that I got to try to integrate with all the other parts. And there can be like this role confusion and this sense of like, who am I without that part? And I, I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling during different transitions of their life. Role confusion. That's a good, that's a good word. Um, to think about because, yeah, I think I see myself and I see others grappling with that, especially when we start talking here in the deeper waters of mm-hmm. ourselves. You know, you were talking about connection earlier, and I wanted you to unpack this one because I haven't unpacked it for even, I haven't unpacked it for myself or as an adult. So here we've got kids. So I've got a lot of kids. And in the early stages of parenthood, 
Some of my listeners will have heard me talk about this before. It's just, it was so profound to me. Early stages of parenthood were going along and my wife then gets, I don't know, a book or something and starts reading about attachment. We have two or three kids by this time. And she says, wow, she's just reading this thing. This is talking about healthy attachment and it's, it's sites. I'm paraphrasing kid comes in with a bloody knee. You know, your toddler comes in or your young kid comes in with a bloody knee and what's your, what do you generally do? I care dramatically about the kid and I grab him. Oh my gosh, you know, it's terrible. Let's get it cleaned up and let's get a bandaid on it. And I'm just, I'm just caring for them the best that I know how. And she's saying, however, this thing's talking about healthy attachment happens more. So if you would just embrace them, Mm. give them some compassion, blew me out of the water. I felt guilty at first. I thought, I just didn't know. And so, mm-hmm. and so, but we just made an about face, especially me and just tried it. So the next time kid walks in or runs in crying and blood on wherever, and instead of dealing with the blood, just hold them. And so I'm doing this literally. I mean, it happened the first time, the second, just doing this. They sit there and, oh, and I'm probably trying to say just, Oh, I'm so sorry. That was, I think that was the main thing. Instead of trying mm-hmm. to minimize just, oh, I'm so sorry. And lo and behold, how often they would just kind of get done and, and then run away. Yeah. We didn't even touch the, the, the thing's still bleeding and they don't mm-hmm. even care. And it, it rocked my world now. So I'm aware of that. Great, grateful as a parent. I haven't taken that and extrapolated that correlated with myself or an mm-hmm. adult do that mm-hmm. for me. Well, I think we just had like a full circle moment because what you're referring to here is really what I think is the opposite of toxic positivity. When we're able to just connect over what is going on in that moment, not trying to make it better, but just saying, wow, that hurts. That's hard. I'm here with you in this moment until you're ready to do something else about it. Tell me about... And I thought about this when I was asking you about your clients and how you prepare them for the next thing about expectations. That's a word that continues to rise to the surface for me, how led we are and at risk of our expectations, because I'm going to wake up today and we kind of always are just kind of hoping things will go okay. And if they don't, then it's a bad day. And we talk about that. Tom Rath, who wrote Success 2.0, wrote a book called mm-hmm. Fully Charged. And he talked about that, how it seemed like the good days were happenstance. And he's kind of doing the research going, no, we can kind of the same things happen or, or create a good day. Can we not just sort of manufacture those? But again, look at expectations. We kind of just are expecting things to go well. And when they don't, we fall down. So how do we adjust our expectations? When I work with people, I find that they have, there's two like polarizing sides of this. There are people who expect nothing from life. They expect they will always be treated poorly. Um, They have this worldview based on their experiences, right? And then there are people who expect things generally to go well. And that's typically because our brains are predictive learning machines, right? The certain experiences we have, we're going to predict that more experiences like that will happen in the future that I think we have to get to a place where we expect things to go pretty well, but we're also prepared for if they don't, and that we identify 
what we're able to control in our day-to-day life. We're also allowed to have standards for how people treat us, for the boundaries that we set, and not just allow anything to happen to us in life. Well, you mentioned boundaries, and I saw in your book, you've got an endorsement from Nedra Tawab. uh, Yeah. So she was on the show probably last year. How do you see that come into helping us manage this issue of positivity, negativity, and and just our our, our mental health of the boundaries? Mm -hmm. A lot of the boundary talk around that is like, okay, how can I respond to somebody that's using toxic positivity with me and it's not helpful, right? right? right. And so sharing with them, hey, that's not helpful. Can you do this instead? I think also being very direct from the start of like, this is how you can be helpful to me when I'm struggling or setting boundaries with yourself around. I don't go to this uncle when I have problems because I know he can't hold space for me and he's just going to put me down. So I've decided I don't go to him with that anymore and setting boundaries with yourself around some of that. I mean, again, to look at this, as you're either positive or negative, a person's positive. You know, I mean, are you again bringing us? I mentioned a spectrum that we should be daily as the moments go on. We should kind of we're on a spectrum, kind of like a needle, maybe like a speedometer needle. That needle that we're going, we're going back or forth, and even to help ourselves be have comfort with that as opposed to just labeling. We do that with people. That's a man. That guy's so positive or that guy is so negative and we mm-hmm. just put them there and tend to, we tend to do that with ourselves instead of again, understanding that no, we're, we need to in health be vacillating. For sure. We, I think our culture as a whole is very black and white. We like to organize things into certain categories mm-hmm. when really, like you said, we're moving through the gray all day long. And actually the people that are the most emotionally healthy are able to move in and out of certain emotional experiences and hold two things that are not, you know, the same at the same time. So I can say, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. I felt tired this morning and I had a really great meeting and I did this and not just say it was a bad day, but able to look at the nuance of the day. That, yeah, to say, kind of going back, well, that, again, going back to Zig Ziglar, that was a consummate uh, aspect of his, is failure is an event, not a person. Can we have mm. this bad occurrence during the day, bad thing, but it what, does it have to be a complete bad day or a bad week? And even to what you said a minute ago, it makes me think of uh, resilience. Is that what you're talking about? For sure. You know, resilience is the ability to bounce back, um, to, to move forward after difficult things. And I think this labeling that you're talking about of people, it, it so doesn't work, right? Like no one's going to become more optimistic by labeling them a negative person. No one's going to succeed more by you calling them a failure. So we have to look at, are these words really getting us where we want to be? Okay. I've got, I've got a, a kind of an odd thing to share with you. Uh, or, or it seems a little odd, but it just was so appropriate because I'm reading your book. You're going to be on, this is like two days ago and you're going to be on with me in 48 hours. And I'm really digging into the book and looking at your social media. I'm also over here in my evening time when I tend to read fiction, I got this book from a guy named Frederick Backman. He's uh, I think he's Swedish and I've read a bunch of his books. 
fiction, incredible fiction writer, but he wrote this little, I didn't even know. I just saw some more books of his. I just ordered a bunch and it's a little novella. And I actually forgot to put the title here, but I'm reading it as I'm reading your book. I kept getting this inkling of, of this idea. Now, where does it come from? Finally dawned on me that book ran and got it. And I want to read something that he wrote in it and just, it just, it just hit me and I, I helped me process it. Is that fair, Whitney? Sure. Okay. okay. So, just a, it's just a paragraph. He said, uh, he's, he's writing as a character. It's kind of a, almost like a deathbed perspective, but he's writing as a character of somebody who's famous. And I think he's kind of just writing about himself. And he said, weak people always look uh, at people like me and say, he's rich, but is he happy? So they're questioning as though that was a relevant measure of anything. Happiness is for children and animals. It doesn't have any biological function. Happy people don't create anything. Their world is one without art and music and skyscrapers, without discoveries and innovations. All leaders, all of our heroes, all of your heroes, they've been obsessed. Happy people don't get obsessed. They don't devote their lives to curing illnesses or making planes take off. The happy leave nothing behind. They live for the sake of living. They're only on earth as consumers. Mm. Wow. That's profound. I felt like it was, but you know, again, yeah. this guy's not a therapist, but I read that and I thought, cause that aspect of, it really hit me with that last statement of being a consumer that. I mean, I am, I, I'm, I'm more and more aware as time goes on of things in my life, uh, you call them passions, desires, things that I'm just a consumer of. I mean, I love coffee and I love wine. I'm, I don't really care to go make those things. I'm just happy to be a consumer. There's other things that I am, am incredibly passionate about that I want to help create. I want to help bring forth. So him saying that though, I mean, it's, is that, is that too harsh to say happy People are going along because I'll, I'll, I'll exaggerate his perspective, <laughs> flitting along in life, really not contri- right. contributing. It's the people over here who are obsessed. You could even say, you know, they're troubled by things that then create. And I thought I, I, I resonate a little with some of that. So yeah, tell me. I, I feel like what he's trying to say from my perspective is that people who are just happy and only live in that space are not in touch with the world in any way. They're not necessarily alive because if you're really alive and you're living, you are inspired by things, you're taking action, you feel happiness amongst so many other emotions. So is it fair then that a primary point of your book is, I mean, it's for ourselves, but if I want to, and I'll own this, if I want to, connect with people. I want to affect people, affect this, this culture. I've got to first be in touch with myself, which is being yes. in touch with these emotions so that I can be in touch with the world. Otherwise I'm missing it. A thousand percent. There's, I forget who said this, but there's a quote about like, nobody can meet you further than they can meet themselves. And so if I can't get in touch with who I am in any way, if I don't know my own feelings, there's no way I can identify them with you and sit with you. Well, I don't know of a greater motive uh, to folks go get the book. There you go. Um, <laughs> Whitney, you. I, I just appreciate it again. I, I, that's why you're here. I looked at it, resonated. And this is, as is often the case, this is uh, something that I'm not just interested in. I am a student of uh, need to be continually. So thank you. Thanks for doing what you do. And thanks for taking your time to be with us. Thank you so much for having me. I trust this discussion gave you some true perspective changes on how to deal with the hard things in your life. Again, you can get me 
Whitney Goodman's uh, book, Toxic Positivity. Uh, we're going to redo that. I trust this discussion gave you some true perspective changes on how to deal with the hard things in your life. Again, you can get Whitney Goodman's book, Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy, uh, anywhere. Uh, book, again, just a great dive into more of this discussion. Uh, you can find her at her website, sitwithwit.com, or on Instagram at sitwithwit. Thanks again for choosing to tune into the Self-Helpful Podcast. If you got value, uh, let us know. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Best thing you can do, keep this discussion going. Talk about what you heard here with Whitney with someone else today. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others.